sermons for you all for this morning, so sit back, buckle up. Just kidding. We won't, we won't go three months long right now. Hey, uh, before we get into our time in God's Word, there's a very important announcement I need to make uh, that I meant to make before, but I want to make it now because it's, I think it's, it's still relevant to us as a faith community. But this past Friday, Howard and Josephine Kelly celebrated 43 years of marriage. Joseph, and this is how they did it. Josephine's here, Howard's somewhere else. No, uh, no. The reason why I'm sharing that right now is because I know that they are here today because of how they've allowed Jesus to be in their lives. He wants to draw near. He knocked on their hearts. They opened the doors to their hearts. They let him in, and he did a work that was miraculous in drawing the two of them together and in keeping the two of them together. So we love you guys. We're celebrating with you 43 years of marriage with Christ at the center. So thank you guys. All right, so this morning, we are going to start a two-week sermon series before we kick off into our year in the Gospel of Mark. And to do that, I want you to consider three words this morning, three very important words that crush the spirits of our youth, and three same words which have the power to make the, the, the spirits and the souls of parents in our congregation soar beyond the clouds. You ready? Back to school. Three very important words. There was a commercial maybe 10 years ago or so now. I'm not going to show it on the screen, but feel free to Google it later on. There was this amazing commercial for Staples. And in the commercial, there's this dad who's, you can hear the song, um, it's the most wonderful time of the year playing. You know the Andy Williams classic? It's the most, never mind, I'm not going to sing it. The most wonderful time of the year. You know that song. He's dancing through the aisles, excited. This is his favorite time of year because the kids are going back to school. Well, behind him are two kids moping along, pushing the, the grocery cart as he's throwing like books and folders and pencils and things like that in the cart. Three very important words, back to school. See, the, the time of the year we're in reminds us that seasons change, right? I, I mean, we can certainly, here in New England, we get the most beautiful picture of the changing of the seasons. When we look at the outside, we see spring with the, the flowers coming up. We see summer with the heat and, and things like that. We see the fall. Fall is beautiful around here with the changing of the leaves and all that. And, and we're reminded that, that seasons change, right? But not just seasons out there. Seasons within our own lives, our spiritual lives. King Solomon's, uh, I'm sorry, King David's son Solomon says, For everything there is a season under the heavens, right? For everything there is a season and a time. There are times when our spiritual lives feel like spring, just new life popping up out of the ground, new things happening. We're excited to see God doing a new thing in us. Other times, we feel we're living in the dead of winter. And we know what winter is like around here, right? It gets dark early. Things are, are dead or dormant. There doesn't really seem to be much new, new life going on. We all have different seasons of our lives to, to think about and, and to consider how God does a new thing in different ways at different times in our lives. It's not just back to school, but it's... It's thinking, what is God getting us back to? 
We just came through three months uh, where we kind of prayerfully committed our time to God as a time of renewal in our church. And honestly, I owe such a debt of gratitude to our elders, our staff, our many leaders who came together and made it possible for me to step away, not just be away, but to not be worried and concerned about what's going on here because I was confident that God was working in a powerful way through the people of our church. So I'm very thankful for that. We, we missed you all, but, but I'm, I'm so thank, thankful that we serve in a church where the authority and the responsibility to do something, to accomplish what God has given us to do, doesn't lie in the hands of one person or, or, or a couple people. It lies in the hands of the many, the church body, the, the, the congregation. And so you, you all stepped up and did an amazing job. But here's the thing I want us to think about, I want to consider. We're not done, right? I mean, the Van Horns are back, and, and we're excited to be back with you. But, but it's not like, oh, good, we, we held it together until they got back. Now we can whew, breathe a sigh of relief, right? That's, that's, not, that's not what's going on here in, in what God's doing in us and among us, right? In fact, I would venture to say, and I hope this doesn't scare any of you, I would venture to say that we're just getting started. There was a number of years ago um, where Tar and I went down to Virginia with my family, and, and uh, they were um, competing in a half marathon, for those of you who don't know, it's half of a marathon. <laughs> Curious enough. Now, and here's the other thing to note. I wasn't actually competing. I was cheering them on. I was cheering my family members on. But, but this is what I learned because I don't have many experiences with running marathons or half marathons. Apparently, when the starting gun goes off, you're in a crowd of people getting ready to start. And, and what you picture in your mind is the gun goes off and everyone starts running, right? That's not how it works. In fact, what, what I was told by my family members is they have you gather before the sunrise, like it's still early enough, the sun's not really out yet, and you're just standing in a crowd, waiting. You're ready to go, you got your, number, your, your bib number on, your, your, your shoes tied up, you're ready to go, the gun goes off, and then you stand there. And, and, and then, you know, you start to see a couple people kind of shift, and a little people move, and then people start walking. And then the crowd starts walking, and as the crowd spreads out, then, right? So by the time you actually get to the starting line, people are starting to move a little bit, right? Well, in a similar way, that's what's going on in our consideration of what it means to be in a time of renewal. The starting gun has gone off, but we're just getting started. In fact, I would say we're just now approaching the starting line where we can run our race together as a church family. Right? It's a season of renewal. And, and, and to, to fully embrace all that God has for us in this season of renewal, for us to be able to run our race as a church family, as a faith community, we need to understand two things. One, renewal will take time. And not just a certain measurable amount of time. Not just like, okay, by one year from now, things should be all fixed and back to, back to normal. No, renewal is a season of time, and it will require persistence and perseverance for all of us, that, that, we, that we would be stubbornly focused on God renewing us over a season. Let's be stubborn. I mean, there's not many things we enjoy stubbornness over, right? Actually, not many things that other people enjoy about our stubbornness, but let's, let's invite one another to be stubborn over looking to God for renewal among us. 
Secondly, renewal will be accomplished. It's a guarantee, people. I, I, I promise you that if we focus on God, if we, if we remain stubbornly focused on him, he will accomplish renewal among us. Why? Because we live in a time where God's good news is not just a future promise, but it's here and now. It's a present reality. The things that, that Jesus ha, ha, has invited into our lives has begun. Through his death and resurrection, he started something amazing and powerful and new. And so it's not just a future promise. It's a present reality in which God is working in us and among us now. See, the, the the moment when Jesus first came, our history, the history of this world, the character of our world changed forever. And these changes are things we can then only notice through the lenses of the life of Jesus. So for this week and for next, we're going to look at the starting line we're crossing together as a church family. We're going to take a look at what it means to get going. We're going to consider what Jesus' invitation is on our lives as we approach and get ready to cross the, not the finish line, but the starting line. And then after that, we're going to dwell for the foreseeable future in, in the gospel of, of Jesus through the lenses of Mark. We're going to take a look at this Jesus, this, this king, this savior, this victorious one. We're going to take a look at his life through the lenses of his life told to us by Mark. And now, so... Here's my quick invitation to you. I really hope that you'll join us, not one week, not two weeks, but join us week in and week out. It's not just about, hey, what does Pastor Dan have to say to us? But this is a, this is a, a, a joint adventure. This is something we are doing together. And, and, and that can only be accomplished if we come together to celebrate our king, to celebrate who he is and what he's doing, to actually not... Not think about who he is because we heard someone tell us about Jesus, but because we ourselves are looking into his life as revealed to us through the Gospels. See, the Gospel of Jesus changes everything. And it does so much more than just save us from our past. It gives us a future. It gives us a purpose. So, like back to school season, the gospel invites us into a season of getting back to it, of getting back to what we were meant to be and who we are meant to follow and, and who we're meant to become like, to get back at it with a new purpose and led by a capable king. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the Gospel of John. If you want to grab a Bible from the seat in front of you, we're going to be on page 907. It's John chapter 21. I'm going to read a passage for us of one of the times that Jesus showed up after he came back to life. After he had been crucified and rose from the grave, he reveals himself to people. And we're going to read one of those stories together this morning in John chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 14 verses for us. The Gospel of John tells us this. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. 
Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. And so they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so would the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for being the kind of God who wants to be known. Thank you for being God who reveals himself through his word. May we, Lord, hold your word with the respect and awe that it is due. Speak to us. May your Holy Spirit guide us in this time in your word and transform us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, question, Jesus is here on the, the, the shore of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, and, and he reveals himself. Have you ever, have you ever done something that, that revealed something about yourself to friends, family, people at work? You ever done something that kind of showed something about who you are, what you could do, some special talent? A while back, Tara and I went on a trip down to Maryland to visit family, and, and uh, I think maybe Max and Alex were alive at that point, but we, uh, <clears throat> we decided one of the things that would be fun to do as a family is go roller skating, right? And, and I mean, you would anticipate... Uh, you know, not everyone goes roller skating every day. Some people do, but uh, you'd anticipate lots of falling, lots of injuries, lots of that. Well, uh, I, I can still remember the look on Tara's face when, when I, put, I strapped those rollerblades on and I took off on the floor and, and I was showing off all my rollerblading skills. I, I mean, she couldn't imagine what kind of whiz I was on these rollerblades, right? I, I remember at one point I spun around, was skating backwards for her and showing off. It was great. She had no clue what kind of man she had married, how cool he was, and how talented he was. One of the things we actually did over the sabbaticals, we took the kids roller skating up in Waterbury, and, and again, I got to show off my, my hidden talents for, for my, my kids, and if you ask any of them after the service, I almost guarantee that they're going to say they've got the coolest dad in the world, right? Here's the thing. Just as I was revealing myself, something about who I was, something that they didn't yet know, Jesus shows up at the Sea of Tiberias to reveal himself to his disciples. The, the men who had spent three years of their life with him, walking with him, seeing him do miracles, seeing him teach people and, and, and confront the Pharisees, Jesus had still something else to reveal to his disciples. 
You, you may have noticed when I read the text for us, but these verses open and close with two very neat bookends. If you, you know, bookends like books on a bookshelf have these two metal pieces that hold the books together. Our passage has two nice, neat little bookends that hold our passage together. Something that, that tells us, that clues us into what John's communicating to his readers. In, in verse 1, John tells us that, that Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples and he revealed himself in a certain way. And then down in verse 14, John tells us that this was now the third time that Jesus had revealed himself to his disciples. Now, some translations may say that, that he manifested himself, but the, the point is, is that Jesus showed up on that day on the shore of Tiberias to make something clear to his disciples about what kind of savior and king he is. Now, we'll, we'll come back to Jesus' specific purpose in a few minutes, but, but before we do, I want you to consider the manner in which Jesus reveals himself to his disciples. In, in verse 1, John 21, 1, John makes the point that Jesus revealed himself in this way. He, he, he revealed himself in a particular manner that, that John wants us to pay attention to, Right? Now, there are two very specific ways that Jesus reveals himself to us in our passage. Through his word and through worship. The very first thing Jesus says in our passage comes after a night of fruitless fishing by the disciples. Right? In verse 3, we're told the disciples head out to go fishing all night long. All night they're together. But that night, guess what? They caught nothing. Nothing. And so at this point, Jesus is standing on the shore. Later on, we kind of get an idea that he's about 100 yards away from them. They're about 100 yards offshore fishing. Jesus is standing there and shouts out to them, hey guys, have, have you not caught any fish? In the Greek, it almost presumes like the, the negative response. Like he knows they're going to say no, we haven't caught anything. And I know it's not necessarily clear to us, but I still think that that's important. That it's in the little things that Jesus is revealing something about himself that he could say to them, hey, hey guys, hey children, hey boys, have you not caught anything? Now, this is not a disrespectful way for Jesus to address them. It's kind of like a casual, hey, hey buddy, or hey guys. It's not like he's belittling them by calling them boys or children or anything like that. But he does presume to know that they haven't yet caught anything. They don't, they don't recognize him. In, in fact, prior, even prior to him calling out, even after he calls out, they still don't recognize him. But this word that he proclaims, this moment, this question that he declares to them, have you still not yet caught any fish, sets in motion how God, or how Jesus is, is going to reveal himself. Take a look at verse 6 with me. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. Now I want you to notice four simple words that are easy to gloss over in that verse. So they cast it. See, Jesus reveals himself to the disciples and to us when we respond to his word with obedience. Jesus declares, we obey, right? I know, I know that word obedience, obey, carries like a yucky feeling for many of us. 
It, it carries this like demanding, authoritative, uh, we're, we're, demand, we're, we're required to obey this person or that person or do this or do that. And, and, and we may not want to say it out loud, but for many of us, it stirs up kind of this uncomfortable feeling inside of us. We, 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 we cherish our autonomy. We wouldn't necessarily, again, say it to, to people, but we love to be independent and autonomous. We, we love to not feel like someone else has authority over my time and my responsibilities and, and, and what I'm going to spend with my day. You know, we live in the land of the free. We, we, we love to do things the way we love to do things. But I think the kind of obedience that the disciples learned that day, maybe not knew they were having, but the, that they learned that day, is a different kind of obedience. John Stott wrote that Christian obedience is, is unlike every other kind of obedience. It's not the obedience of slaves or soldiers, but essentially the obedience of lovers who know, love, and trust the person who issues the command. Now at that point, the disciples didn't yet know that it was Jesus. They were willing to try something because they'd spent the entire night fishing and had come up empty-handed. So they're like, you know what? Why not? Let's try this, right? But what they learn is that when they respond to Jesus' word in obedience, they had a net full of fish. This kind of obedience is essentially what Jesus had in mind when he taught his disciples by telling them that if we love him, if we love Jesus, we'll keep his commandments, right? A life of obeying Jesus is absolutely freeing, right? It's, it's, not, it's not surrender to being slave, or to having to continuously deny your own uh, wisdom and, 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 and whatnot. It's an invitation to trust. It's an invitation to love. It's an invitation to be free in the, in the space that Jesus carves out for us. Because in this life, we learn to, to, uh, to, to, to trust him in such a way that we see him accomplish the outcomes. We're not responsible for the outcome. He is. And so when we, when we learn to trust him in obedience, we learn he actually is trustworthy to accomplish what is good and right and necessary in our lives. Now, if you flip over to page 901 in the Pew Bibles, to John chapter 14, verse 21, we read this. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them he it is who loves me. And he who loves me, guess what? Will be loved by my father. And I will love him and manifest, reveal myself to him. Church, I know that obedience is not a fun word. I, I, I know it can feel yucky for some of us. But when we learn to hear Jesus' invitation to trust him, to obey him, you are going to experience not just knowing him more fully, but receiving and knowing the love of your Father in heaven and know and receive the love of Jesus Christ, his only son. 
And so Jesus is revealed and made clear to us when we receive his words and when we receive them with love and humility and then respond in obedience. But to see this, to see this word, to to experience his word, we have to surrender our hunger for autonomy. We have to surrender our, our desire for independence. We have to lay down our arrogance to assume we know what's best. I know that it might feel uncomfortable to hear a pastor say that we're arrogant, but I'm arrogant. Like, I'm not saying, I'm not pointing a finger out there. I, too, am arrogant. Don't ask Tara, but there's often times where we get into conversations where I think I'm right and she's wrong. Well, guess what? Sometimes that's right, but oftentimes it's not. (laughs) That was an inappropriate place to say amen. (laughs) Amen. Church, we have to learn to stop trusting ourselves as the highest authority and and learn to trust Jesus, to trust his words, to abandon ourselves to following him by trusting and obeying him. And and you will learn God's love for you in that process. You will see maybe not a net of fish to pull up out of the ocean, but a net of, of God's love and grace, and mercy, and compassion, and purpose poured out in your life. So the first way Jesus is revealed is through his word, which which the the, the scriptures again promise will not return to God void. And the second way in which Jesus reveals himself to his disciples is through our worship of him. In other words, our, our response to his initiatives and invitations in our lives. If you were to look at John 21, verse 7, John, the, the disciple whom uh, we assume it's John, John, the, the one whom Jesus loved, says while they're standing in the boat, Look, it's the Lord. That's the Lord. Right? He points to Jesus. John's response to Jesus being revealed is not just to point to Jesus, but then guess what? Everyone around John is also looking where John's pointing, right? John points all the others to Jesus as well, to the point where Peter looks up from whatever he's doing, realizes what's going on, throws his clothes back on, jumps into the water, and swims 100 yards to shore. Worship is our response to to God's invitations and initiatives in our lives. His word is the most clear invitation and initiative offered to us. When we read Jesus' teachings, his laws, his, obe- or his commandments, his ways, when we not just read them to check a, a box to say, I read that verse for today, when we read them in such a way that we want to ingest them, we want to eat them like a meal We hear the invitations. We hear the initiatives of what God wants to do in our lives. And when we respond, not just in obedience, but also in worship, we we respond in such a way that we're, we're, we're drawn to him. And here's the thing. Worship is not one dimensional. It's not just showing up here on Sunday morning and declaring it is the Lord, right? It consists of gathering with other believers. It consists of reading the the word of God. It it consists of studying the word of God. 
asking questions of it, seeking to understand it, not just wanting to understand it, but, but considering how do we live into this word that God has declared. It, it consists of observing, obey, obeying, and, and following God's word, and fellowshipping together, praying together, encouraging one another, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. All of this is worship. Why? Because it's a response to God's invitations and initiatives in our lives. My favorite picture of of worship is oftentimes a table that Jesus meets us at in the scriptures. Right, David spoke of a, of a table in Psalm 23 as, as the Lord sets this table before us in the presence of our enemies. Right? Here in our, our passage, Jesus invites his disciples to come and have breakfast with him. In, in Revelation chapter 23, we're told that for those who, who, who open the door of their hearts when Jesus is knocking on it, he will come in and sit at the table and enjoy a meal with us. Now, here's the thing. These are pictures of peace that Jesus makes with us. These are, 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 are pictures that Scripture paints of, of places where Jesus comes to the table, and across the table, he extends his acceptance of us, his forgiveness of us. The peace that he establishes, that he secured for us on the cross, is made available to us that we might have with the Father in heaven because he sits with us across the table, it's so much more than just eating food for physical nourishment. I love that picture, not just because I love food, right? Only when the disciples draw closer to Jesus in worship, only when they draw near and gather around the table can they get close enough to hear Jesus' further invitations for fellowship and sharing a meal. Look at verse 13 and 14 with me one more time. After Jesus invites them for breakfast, he came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Almost like the pinnacle of Jesus revealing himself, of manifesting himself to his disciples, is this, this intimacy, this communion that Jesus shares with, with his disciples. As he did on, on many other occasions, Jesus declares the good news of his kingdom. He takes, the, he takes the bread and he gives it to them. Something new is happening. It, it, it's it, like back to school season. There's a new thing that's happening here. The kingdom has come. Just as, just as Jesus did on the night when, when he was betrayed, he institutes this supper, this meal, that they would always remember what Jesus did on their behalf. When they eat of this bread and drink of this cup, they would remember Jesus' body broken for them and his blood poured out on their behalf. Just as he did when he revealed himself to the, the, the two disciples on the road traveling to Emmaus. Do you remember that story? After Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, we're told two disciples are walking along the road to Emmaus and a a stranger, someone they don't recognize, comes up alongside them. And and after asking them why they're so downcast and and sad, uh, he, he, 
he proceeds to tell them why it was necessary that the Son of Man, that Jesus, would die on the cross. And how does he do this? He, he, he leads them through the, the prophets and the scriptures, pointing out all of this truth about Jesus through the scriptures. He points to the word. And then what do they do? When they get to Emmaus, these two, they invite Jesus inside with them. They sit at the table. He breaks the bread. And immediately they recognize him. Jesus reveals himself to us through his word and, to our wor- and in our worship of him. These are two of the most uh, utmost important aspects or, or, or things necessary for our Christian walk. I, I, it's a fallacy for us to think that I can believe in Jesus but then not be connected to the family of God somewhere in this world. When, when Jesus came... He, he wasn't just, he, he didn't just like come to, to die on the cross. He establishes his church. His kingdom grows and expands on this earth through his people. And he invites us to gather together, to, to, to focus in on the word of God, to, to focus on the declarations of Jesus, and to worship God together as a people. So if, if you want to know and fall deeper in love with Jesus... You know, opening our Bibles once a week on a Sunday morning isn't enough. Even, even opening our Bibles seven days a week is not enough. Not if we're not lovingly putting into practice and obedience the wisdom and the truth we're receiving in it. Right? It's not just a matter of reading our Bibles. It's a matter of recognizing, realizing the love letter that God has written, the invitations, the initiatives that God extends to us through his son Jesus and through the word that we have here. This is a a, a letter of love to us, not just some document that we can flip flip through, gaze at quickly, and then move on from. If you want to know Jesus more fully and follow him more boldly, even attending a worship service on, on Sunday mornings is not enough. Now, it's not to say that you have to be here five nights a week and that's, that makes you a really good question, uh, Christian, but it's to say it's not just a matter of the actions. It's a matter of, uh, of falling in love with him. And how do we do that? In response to his word through obedience and worshiping him for it. I remember when I was a little kid, I, I didn't like eating vegetables. And so my parents would give me what they called a, a no thank you portion, Right? It was like two pieces of broccoli or, you know, one carrot or something like that. And it was good enough, right? They, they, at that point, they're like, all right, we're not going to argue with you if you have a no thank you portion, right? I mean, this portion, don't get me wrong, it, it, was, it, it tasted gross. And I don't think it was enough to actually do me any good. But I think my parents were hoping that if I had a no thank you portion, eventually I'd fall in love with carrots. And I tell you what, I, I haven't yet fallen in love with carrots, but... <laughs> My point is this, I think many of us are taking a no thank you portion of Jesus. We're taking just enough to to feel like maybe we're doing something good, but but hear me when I say this. A no thank you portion of Jesus isn't doing you any good. Right? Uh, Showing up at church on Sunday morning is not enough. Reading the Bible once a week, even reading the Bible seven days a week is not enough. There's a work that he wants to do in you but it requires your response to his generous invitations and initiatives. 
So Jesus reveals himself to us through his word and our worship of him. And then here in John 21, we realize that Jesus has revealed himself to them for a very specific purpose. You know, I mentioned Jesus spent three years of his life with with these disciples. So it's not like, like they're... It's not like they don't know this man, right? I mean, miraculously, they may not have expected to see him because he, they, a few days before, or a couple weeks before, they just witnessed him being crucified on a Roman cross. But you kind of are left to wonder, what do they not yet know about him? What is still to be revealed about this man to them? Now, I don't think it's by random chance that Jesus shows up by the shore of Tiberias while the disciples are, are fishing, what we know about these men, many of them were fishermen. Not all of them, but many of them were fishermen. This is now the third time that he's revealed himself to this group. The first two uh, was on <clears throat> the night of the first uh, Sunday of, of resurrection. When they're gathered in the upper room, they're terrified of the Jews, so they lock the door and they close themselves in, and Jesus shows up among them. The second time, <clears throat> about a week later, when uh, Thomas was frustrated because he missed the first one. So, uh, you know, about a week later, Jesus reveals himself to Thomas, right? And, and Thomas and, the, and the, the crowd of disciples. Now, interestingly enough, this is actually the third time, at least in the Gospel of John, that Jesus has revealed himself after the crucifixion, right? You may remember the very first person he reveals himself to is Mary Magdalene outside the tomb. But this is the third time where Jesus reveals himself to the group of disciples altogether. And I, and I don't think it's by random chance that Jesus chose to do it by the shore of Tiberias, also known as the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you flip back in the, the Pew Bibles to page 809 or Matthew chapter 4, I want us to look at a, a real quick passage Uh, where we understand that what the disciples are doing this day, that Jesus comes alongside them, is not a new thing for them. Rather, it's something they knew very well because it was actually their vocation that they were doing at the time when Jesus called them to follow him early on the Gospels. Let me read it for us. In Matthew chapter 4, we read this. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. See, the disciples... They knew fishing. Many of them knew fishing. It was their way of life. It was their profession. It was their vocation. It was the family business for some of them, probably. Well, not probably. It was a family business for the, the two sons of Zebedee. They were familiar with this. And they were, they were used to being, they used to be fishermen. But now, their time has come to become fishers of men, fishers of women, fishers of children, And so please don't miss Jesus' central point in this renewed calling. Because Jesus meets his disciples at a moment of their failing in the flesh. This this discipline that they knew so well didn't go so well that night. 
Do you remember how John describes their fishing trip in our passage? In verse 3, John says, they went out, they got into the boat, and they caught a little bit, small fish. They caught nothing. They came up empty-handed. Now, what I want you to realize, and maybe this is what Jesus wants us to realize, is that they did that without Jesus. Jesus, after his resurrection, sends them to wait for them in Galilee. He says, wait for me there. And so by going out fishing, they're not necessarily being disobedient or anything like that. I mean, they've got to eat. They've got to, they've got to figure out what's going on. Their whole life, their whole world has changed from what they thought it was going to be, right? So it's not like they've, they're being disobedient by going fishing. But, but still, they, they, they go out, they catch nothing without Jesus. See, we, we need Jesus' word, and we need to be a people of worship because without Jesus, our fishing trips in this world will come up empty-handed. You may think highly of yourself or consider yourself learned or, or able to quote widely from various Bible teachers, but a, apart from Jesus, you're not able to accomplish anything of true eternal value. I mean, I think we, we need to understand that. It's easy for us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. But without Jesus, we can do nothing. Our only hope for this life and for the next is to see our lives grafted into the life of Jesus. Right, John, in, in John 15, this is page 901 in our pew Bibles, in John 15, verse 4 and 5, Jesus tells us this. He says, he says abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can catch nothing. Right? Uh, apart from Jesus, apart from trusting him, obeying him, abiding in him, dwelling with him, we can do nothing. But with Jesus, we're able to accomplish all that he's given us to accomplish. That morning, after a night of fruitless fishing, the disciples pull in a net full of large fish, we're told, 153 to be exact. And although there were so many, the net wasn't even torn. Now, I can't, <clears throat> I can't say for certain, but it, it, it almost feels like a commentary on the life of a disciple who clings to and abides in Jesus. Jesus will not lose the catch he's called on us to make. Again, I, I can't say for certain that's what's being communicated here, but that's what it feels like, right? Apart from Jesus, we can catch nothing. With Jesus, we can accomplish all that he set out for us to do, and guess what? Even our nets won't be torn. We won't be destroyed. We won't be torn apart. We are not able, but he is. Church, as we close our, our time in this passage, I, I, I want you to consider something, to prayerfully consider something. We're in a new season as a church family, and not just a season of renewal, but this is a time of renewed purpose in the good news, the gospel of Jesus' kingdom. It's a special time for us. And, and so then as our king, 
the king of this kingdom which he has established, Jesus is able to build his kingdom through us. So when we think about John chapter 21, when we think about Jesus revealing himself to his disciples, he also reveals himself to us as being the one who is able to accomplish the sort of things in and through us that I think we all desire to see happen. To see people coming to learn of God's love for them and trust in Jesus themselves. <clears throat> for, to see people growing in their trust in Jesus, their knowledge of him. To see people independently feeding themselves on the promises of God in the scriptures. To, to see our, our congregation as a whole loving one another, encouraging one another. To see us grow in our boldness of telling others about this good news of Jesus Christ. All of that is possible as we abide in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is able. Apart from him, we can do nothing. With him, our nets will be full. And so this, this morning, when Jesus reveals himself to his disciples, he gives them a renewed purpose in the kingdom to be fishers of men who through abiding in Jesus are able to bring more fish into the kingdom of God, right? God wants to see his kingdom grow and expand and guess what? He's choosing to do so through you and me. And this we do by, by revealing Jesus to the world. Just as Jesus was revealed to the disciples through his word and worship, so we too have been given a renewed purpose to reveal Jesus to the world through his word and our worship of him. And we do all this by observing Jesus' words and obedience and worshiping him together. So church, yeah, it's back to school season. But even more importantly, it's time for us to get back at it. It's time for us to get to work. It's time for us to see God's kingdom grow and expand in and through us because we are so utterly devoted to him and in love with him as we look at his word. Can I pray for us? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for... Uh, your love for us, even, even at times when we don't feel your nearness, we know you are near. We know you are doing a work in this world, and we thank you, Lord, that you invite us to be a part of that work. Father, I pray for a boldness in our hearts and minds this morning, that we would, that we would hear your challenge to get back at it. For those of us who, who need to just begin to open the word and not feel like we have to rush through three chapters, but just to, to lovingly chew on two or three verses to, to spend time with you, Lord, and then to consider how you're calling us to respond in obedience. Lord, I pray for the courage that that, for that to be true for those of us here this morning. We would feel that invitation. Lord, there are some of us here who, uh, who, whose uh, the role of worship doesn't have a very abundant place in our lives. Lord, whether it's singing or praying or proclaiming your truth uh, and, and, and gathering and fellowship and, and, and whatnot. I pray that you would give us new ideas, fresh uh, encouragement and strength to gather together 
to, to, to gather together not for the purpose of a laughter or a meal, but to gather with you at the center of it all because of what you're doing, the good news of Jesus Christ, the kingdom come that you are bringing about. Lord, we thank you so much that you love us and that you are able to do this. May we be faithful to trust and obey you and see you accomplish all that you desire to in and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.